you know, Power Rangers is a pretty solid brand, but it's not really, it's not like Mickey Mouse. There are only so, there's only so much room, I think, in people's hearts. I'm reminded of something that my wrestling coach in college would always say, which was, if you're going to uh, mess up on a handstand, fall forward, fall trying and don't fall because you're timid. And that's something that I think about as I talk about Disney right now. Let the discounted cash flow through you. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment stories from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes successful analysis work. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. Today we're looking at Disney and what its story is going to be over coming years. First, some background and a disclosure. Seeking Alpha is a website where investors around the world share their investment ideas and analysis. Mike has no positions in any company discussed on this podcast, while I am long Disney. Nothing on here should be taken as investment advice. If you like what we're doing, please leave a review and subscribe to Behind the Idea on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Today's topic, Disney is an American titan facing an unsure landscape. Its cash cow media business driven by ESPN is struggling. Consumer preferences for how they watch content are changing. And it's not clear if Disney will survive these changes well. Brian Langis wrote up the company in an article for Seeking Alpha and how they may position for the future over the next five to 10 years. And he suggests there could be a happy ending. The theme of today's episode, looking at both the story and the numbers. So, Mike, when I say Disney, what do you think? I think princesses. I think theme parks. I think superhero movies. I think Star Wars. I think Jim Cramer recommending holding in his portfolio in that stock price graphic showing up on Mad Money pretty much up and to the right. I think steady. I think all-American. Those are my free associations. In terms of the business itself, I kind of think that Walt Disney has lately had a little bit of a resurgence in terms of people's view of the company as an innovator. But nevertheless, I kind of think of Disney as perhaps underrated as an innovator, or at least as a capital allocator. Their purchase of Marvel, I think, is one of the most forward-looking and smartest decisions uh, in merger history. It's a candidate, I think it's in the discussion for being one of the best moves uh, any company has made. A lot of people talk about their intellectual property and their assets, their cast of characters, and how intertwined with the concept of American, American Family Disney is you do the exercise of what companies are going to be around in the next hundred years. And I think Disney is probably a really strong candidate for along with Coke and Costco and some other companies, Johnson and Johnson, long-term future prospects in terms of sustainable business model. I think of it as being extremely strong. The question is, you know, whether the price is worth it and when it's a good opportunity. That's my overall Yes. What about you, Daniel? I think it only really hit me, the Marvel thing, recently. I don't watch the Marvel movies very much, and 
when you see that, oh yeah, they have Marvel, they have Star Wars, etc. Like it does really sort of pile on Pixar. It really does start to pile on and you think about, gosh, they really do have a lot of content. I, I never really thought about it much until recently, until kind of that light bulb went on and then also just reading a few articles. I saw a pretty good interview between Derek Thompson of The Atlantic and Scott Galloway of New, New York University. And I forget, I think Inc. or I2 Inc. or something is what he belongs to. But just a good discussion about Disney versus Netflix and sort of content versus distribution. And it got me to looking at the stock, which, so as I disclosed, I have a, a position. It's a very small, even less than a starter position, really. And it just, it's an interesting case because for everything you said about Disney's endurance, the stock has kind of been flat to down over the last three years. So it's kind of a air pocket. And I think there are real questions about the company. There's real questions about whether it will succeed as consumer habits change in terms of wanting everything online, wanting to consume everything at home or on the phone, not wanting to cut the cord. You said what's interesting, and I think your perception matches what I would think about Disney first, but you didn't even mention ESPN, which is really Disney owns 80% of ESPN and it's a huge part of their business. Uh, that unit is a huge part of their operating income and so forth. But that's also under a lot of threat because of cord cutting and because of just shift in preferences. And so I think it's a really interesting time for the company where on the one hand, it seems like yeah, Disney, like it is, it is American. What's more American than Mickey Mouse? And, and then all the other things you mentioned are such hot properties, but the company is, it, the stock isn't doing well. And I think there are real and legitimate questions about where Disney is headed in the next few years. And whether or not it survives is maybe not the right question, but whether it's worth paying for, as you said. Right. So that brings us to Brian Langis, I think. His article basically asserts that Disney is in great shape, or at least that Disney faces a really strong strategic opportunity. And so let's get into that. But first, I'll just say I did forget ESPN, but I do think ESPN is great. I love watching sports. One other thing I forgot to mention in my rundown that I want to bring back right now real quick is uh, they call all their employees cast members, like whether you're, whether you work for ABC News or whether you, and you're like a copy editor for their website, you're still a cast member. And they also, I have a friend who works for Disney, I won't say what division, and he, he regularly get tickets, I think, to the Orlando theme parks and stuff if you've worked for a certain number of years. So we probably won't get into it too much, but they have some funny uh, employee relations things going on that I think goes all the way back to the founder himself, Walt Disney, and this kind of very specific vision for what it means to work for the company. But anyway, let's get to Brian Langis. Why don't you tee that up for us? So Brian starts out by saying he's not going to do a DCF and he wants to look at them strategically. 
in your face. Peter Lynch style. No DCF. You want a DCF? Here's a, I'll quote him. Quoting Brian Langus. If you are looking for a DCF model of the next 10 years, this is not the right article. Boom. Talk about planting a flag in terms of your analytical approach. I, we allow this as editors, uh, but I think there's some, we, we should, why don't we just start with that? What's he doing? I think it's right to distinguish between the two. I think you do need to break down the numbers because there's there are a lot of moving parts to Disney. They're buying a big chunk of Fox. Like there's so many things that you do need to account for. I don't want to get all into an imaginary world where numbers don't matter. But he's approaching it from the strategic business analysis angle and and also the P- Peter Lynch angle of I have two small children and Disney Disney helps me with parenting. So so he they'll cry. He made, he's a, <laughs> cry. They'll cry and he's afraid of making them cry or that they'll need therapy later if he doesn't deliver Disney's offerings to them. He's really he's coming in. This is the most Lynch. This is the full Lynch. You can't get more Lynch than this. You can't get more no go to the store and your own experience matters than than that, right? I mean that he's addicted. His family's addicted to Disney, or at least like it depends on it for his family heart. <laughs> it's a it's a marvelous disclosure, but but he's making the point that he's making a point about Disney's business advantage and the nature of the product and the nature of the relationship between consumers and the product. Let's get in. So let's get into how all of that works together, how this brand allegiance and this stable of characters that are all American and also how, how that sort of strategic position works within the breakdown of the business. Uh, Langus kind of talks about this, so maybe let's take it with sort of his spin. How is he looking at this business in terms of its competitive advantage? I think he's taking what many view as a challenge, which is this idea that the cable bundle is going away, that people are cutting the cord, and he's saying, "Look, wait a second, Disney has ESPN, and it's hard to find sports that ESPN is not involved in. Uh, and I'm not saying this dismissively, like hockey is the sort of sport they're not in. And hockey is the number four or five sport in the U.S. right now. And so that's the sort of sport they're not in. They have, as Brian says, imagine if the new Frozen sequel isn't in theaters, but it's on Disney streaming platform. Like Frozen is a major draw for children and so they're there they have a lot of these sort of must-have things star wars marvel etc and so yes they don't have distribution yet but they bought bam tech the streaming video company that i think major league baseball used to be a major owner of and they now own that so they have a streaming platform to distribute sports content they have they're trying to buy Fox, which would give them 70% of Hulu in total. And so they're, they're trying to develop different streaming platforms. And it's just essentially, it is that content first distribution. They have so much content that they can really start to get creative about how they integrate it. They can start to offer, he suggests, discounts to Disney Plus or whatever their streaming platform 
if you're a member of Disney Plus, you get a discount to the Orlando theme park, or you get a discount to shop for toys. I, I think I'm stealing somebody else's idea. I don't remember whose, but the fact that Walt Disney always, the man, was clever about how to merchandise his intellectual property, that's something that Disney has. And so you can, we're looking at it as a threat that people aren't going to go to movies anymore. They're going to get rid of cable. But if Disney is able to cut out the cable companies and cut out the movie theaters and get directly to their consumers, and if they're able to do that in any meaningfully uh, successful way, that's a huge advantage. I think that's essentially his argument. They have so much content that if they can, rather than viewing this as a threat, if you see them figuring out a way to get this right, it may take some lumps along the way, but it's going to be a huge win for Disney ultimately. Cool. Yeah. God, there's just so many different directions you could take this. Before we go any further with that, let's talk a little bit about Disney's business units, just so everyone and we are clear about that breakdown. So I'll start. Media Networks is basically ESPN, you said, and you chime in here, Daniel. Um, yeah, they've, they've got the Disney Channel and ABC and a couple uh, other channels, but ESPN is the elephant in that room. So that's just under half of their revenue, looks like, as a rough breakdown. Then Parks and Resorts is what it sounds like, and that's another, let's say, quarter more than that, maybe 30%. And then mm-hmm. studio entertainment and consumer products and interactive media, which I think is fair to kind of lump together because one goes with the other. You have like Spider-Man movie and then Spider-Man dolls or whatever. That's another 20 to 30%, whatever, of the company. I just wanted to kind of get the, get the context out there for some business model. Maybe you can sort of flesh out the the details. Well, what do you, I mean, just what do you think about the the idea of Brian quotes the Jeff Bezos quote about I think you can't you don't want to cannibalize your business too early, but if you're too late, you are doomed. Yeah, Somebody's going to be yeah, too, too late. Yeah. What do you think is as far as when you're either as a consumer or as an investor, when you look at Disney and their position right now, what do you think about either their chances of pulling off this transition or what would you want to watch for as they try to move towards a model where instead of you going to your TV or going to the bar and watching ESPN, you pull it up on your tablet or you whatever. Like, What, are you, what would you watch for? It's a great question. I'm kind of racking my brain. I was thinking a lot about Ironically, The Ringer, Bill Simmons' website, and the kind of, he just had a podcast earlier this week. I confess, I listened to Bill Simmons' podcast, and uh, he's greatly informative of my own approach to the art of podcasting. So, (laughs) hey, Bill Simmons, thank you for firing me. But back to the point. So, first of all, it's ironic because Bill Simmons used to work for ESPN, and they had kind of a painful parting of ways several years ago, which led him to found this media company called The Ringer. HBO is an early investor, and they certainly partner with HBO in terms of the content library they have access to. Why am I saying this? Because interaction and interacting with media, the way consumers interact with entertainment products today is 
cannibalization, I think, is less of a concern overall because the Ringer, their model basically is they have a website that has reported, written, online digital content. So they have, you know, columns, opinion pieces, occasional investigative reports about sports mostly, and then some about pop culture. And then, but that's really just a way into their podcast network where they're just trying to flow you into listen to all this content that bounces back and forth between the material that's on their website and on the uh, podcast. And then also what's on HBO and they have this partnership with HBO. So you, you watch, you watch the NBA and then you read an article about it on the ringer. You also watch the NBA with, Snapchat and Twitter and Instagram open, and then you read a column about it, and then you listen to a podcast. It's all from the same source material. So I think we're in an age where the fear of cannibalization should be much less. We know that there are audiences, you can build together an audience that is interested in a niche, and then if they're interested enough, they will consume sort of seemingly endless amounts of content related to it. So what would I look for for Disney? I would look for them to be on this level of engagement on multiple platforms, sometimes simultaneously, and I'd be looking for them to target the next generation. I don't think that if Disney rolled out podcasts or rolled out a Ringer-type website for their own things, that that would position them strongly. I think that's we need to see them make moves that are sort of two steps, two years, three years ahead of that. And I don't know whether that means VR or whatever. That's kind of the problem. If I were to put a bearish spin on this thesis or contradict it, I would say, we don't know how consumers are going to interact with entertainment through what media or what distribution key to this thesis going forward. And so I'd be looking for innovation there. They've been good at that on large scale in the past. I don't know how good they've been at making small bets in terms of innovating the customer experience. Maybe they're too slow for that. What do you think? Well, I wanted to come back to you with two tech industry, either references or maxims. And here, maybe pose the question to you a different way, because I think and I think this goes back to the theme of story versus numbers. We could probably build out DCFs or build out spreadsheets and try to quantify a lot of this. But to me, that does feel secondary to the more fundamental who is going to win the story, who is going to tell this, you know, gain that advantage better. We go back to content versus distribution. I have two things that come to mind is, first of all, there's, Another Bezos quote that I think is quite good, and he says quite a lot, which is, rather than trying to think what will change, try to find what won't change, right? What will be the same five or 10 years from now? And in Amazon's case, it's that they'll want things cheap, they'll want it fast, and they'll want options or whatever. I forget exactly what they say. But in this case, I, I don't know what's what won't change, but that that's question one to think about. And then what you said about we don't know what will how people will interact with content so given that netflix 
is known. They have some good content, obviously, and they'll I'm sure they'll have more good content. But Netflix is sort of giving credit as being the distribution, as figuring out the distribution better than anybody else at getting in front of people. They've you know they're given sometimes it's unsung, but they're given quite a bit of credit for their technology that fuels their platform. That it's not just about the fact that you can watch Master of Love or whatever else on Netflix, but that they have good ways of surfacing the content. It's really a smooth experience all around. Given that we don't know how people are going to engage with content, would you rather have your basket of Marvel, Star Wars, exclusive sports rights, et cetera, or would you rather have that sort of know-how to be able to, that expertise in, in adapting to consumer preferences? Yeah, it doesn't feel like an either or to me. It feels like they go hand in hand. But to speak specifically to your thought about what's always going to be the case in the entertainment business or what's going to always going to be the case for consumers. I think they're always going to want new content, even if it's theme and variation, even if we make the same essential, use the same essential skeleton to make the same essential star Wars movie, but we add new characters where we sort of repaint the scenery. There has to be some novelty to it. I also think the trend is towards increasing believability and increasing production value and sort of a level of convincingness or immersiveness of the, at least the media content, but also probably extending into theme parks and extending into the interactive, the toys and the merchandising. People are always going to want Entertainment is intrinsically sort of a novel activity, and it's also intrinsically sort of a transportative, escapist technology. In terms of which would I rather have, I think it's such a serious advantage to have intractable, transgenerational things like Spider-Man or Star Wars that parents are happy to pass along to their children. That is a source of moat. It's really hard to introduce something, a character or a story that's going to last generation. There's a smaller collection of ideas and concepts that make it there. And then there's an enormous competitive fringe of new, you know, beast mode transformers or Thundercats, or I guess they're trying, they're trying with Thundercats, but these kinds of, you know, Power Rangers is a pretty solid brand, but it's not really, it's not like Mickey Mouse, you know, there are only so, there's only so much room, I think, in people's hearts for that. So I think that's where, that's the benefit of the content library. But distribution, you have to keep, you have to keep up, right? I guess it seems like at least that's where I'm landing at first blush. But I think that if you don't get in front of people, then they'll lose, they'll lose interest. You need to keep pace with this frenetic, this constant change of how people are interacting with and consuming content, I think is really one of the main revolutions that we're going through in this sort of first quarter of the 21st century. I think the... It, I don't have a good answer to content versus distribution. I think you have a reasonable case there. I guess that's, and that's what intrigues me. I, I, I took, I just opened the position this week 
And I want to spend a little bit more time. I do want to look at the numbers in Disney, but it does seem like they, their balance sheet is not great, but it's not terrible. The Fox purchase looks like it's going to be a little bit dilutive. I don't actually think they own Spider-Man as a property yet, but I think with Fox, they would get it. I think Spider-Man is like separate from the rest of the Marvel Universe. I could be not 100% on that, but... Correction. Sony owns the rights to Spider-Man, with Disney only owning the merchandising rights. That doesn't change in this deal. If the deal with Fox closes, Disney does acquire the rights to X-Men and Fantastic Four. Back to the show. Yeah, so I don't know who will win. I'm intrigued enough, and I think there's enough of a, to use the term, margin of safety as far as Disney's viability as a company that I think there's they have better chances than not. And then what I look for, and I think go, to get back to the article, the comment stream, this is a good article also in the sense of, as an example of how to start a conversation. I think sometimes some articles make the whole case and then you can Q&A on specific components of the case and that's fine and that's, that's useful and that, that may be easier to deal with. Some articles start the conversation. I think this was a great article to start a conversation. Some people brought up the point, which Brian agreed with Disney is going to have ESPN plus then whatever they call Disney plus and Hulu 70% Hulu, like that's going to be a messy experience. So, and I've seen this point made by rich Greenfield, who is a sell side analyst who is a prominent bull on Netflix and bear on Disney made the point that Disney just need to go in and stop trying to hedge their bets and trying to save their ESPN revenue or save their movie revenue. They should just really commit to just selling stuff online and it's going to be a big win. So I guess that dynamic is sort of how convincing will Disney be able to make this transition? I think that's what I would watch for. And that's what I think about Brian is bullish. And so he's kind of, when you're thanking Disney for your childcare, it may be, I don't know if that actually plays out, but like he clearly thinks they'll make this transition. I'm not sure. And I probably will never be sure, even if I were to take a full position, but I guess that's what I would watch for is this. I think the parks will probably be fine. Their, their toys and games is not a super strong unit as compared to the other ones. So I'm not as, concerned about that and the studio revenue actually isn't as high as it would seem from the headlines so i guess that's the the linchpin to this is how well will they transition does it look they're not going to get it perfect but are they going to get across to where or is the game going to change and are they going to still be on the playing field i guess that's that's what i'm watching for and i'm reminded of something that my wrestling coach in college would always say, which was if you're going to uh, mess up on a handstand or on whatever else, fall forward, fall trying and don't fall because you're timid. And that's something that I think about as I talk about Disney right now. What do you think? Sounds like the next great animated feature. <laughs> Daniel, the wrestler. <laughs> triumphing over that person. Uh, so <laughs> getting getting to, to response to some of the things you were saying, 
you know, as you mentioned, this kind of straddling that they might have to do and the ESPN may be dead weight in terms of their ability to innovate going forward. I went, my mind went to one of our favorite places to go, which is spinoff. I, I want to I, I think we should go through, let's go through this thought experiment because I think it captures something that's really important about the Disney story. Are its content arms and its distribution efforts, do they go together? Or could you sort of break this business up and have the have everything function independently? I'll give my take first. I, I don't think that ESPN has a lot of synergistic effects with Frozen. But I do think that Disney has an overall you know, we talked about that the employees are cast members. They do have an overall philosophy of what constitutes good entertainment and being a, a good entertainment company that I think does sort of transcend across all the areas they touch. In terms of the distribution angle, I kind of buy the concept that those need to be integrated where I might ordinarily say that the content and the distribution should be separate things because the brand and the experience of the entertainment is so important that Disney needs to control every avenue of the value chain in order to make sure that the experience is all-encompassing. So Disney as a conglomerate, it, this, this gets to the crux of what you're saying, this innovate versus legacy issue. It sort of feels like Disney needs to be a lumbering behemoth and slow and awkward about innovation because it needs to protect and defend the existing experience. What do you think about that? I think it's an interesting... The, the framework I was thinking about as you were speaking was that it gives them, to use a sports cliche, more shots on goal to have ESPN Plus and Disney Plus and who like to figure out what's the best distribution. And maybe it's unique for sports, maybe it's not. They definitely have ESPN zones. They definitely integrate ESPN into their Orlando complex. So I think they they make it work. I also think if they spun off ESPN, it would probably not be the end of the world. And there's some conglomerate risk in terms of headlines. I'm sure we'll get comments on our article and you see it on every article, whether it's, you know, ESPN's politics, Roseanne, like there are all these other sprawling things that Disney has to face because they're so big. In terms of your question about whether they need to be slow and lumbering, I think, I don't, I guess you're, you, you I don't know how they could be fast, right? There's a lot of, it's easy for us to sit here on the sidelines and say, stop selling the but that's a lot of jobs, a lot of people, and it's still a lot of money. It's not like they're, they're still making a lot of money. And I think what's, I guess, so yeah, I think, I don't think they have a choice but to be slow. And also they make a lot of money that can fuel their growth. I guess I would rather, I'm always in favor of cutting down on debt and whatever else, but their balance sheet is pretty healthy. Like I said, they make nine million or ten, like about nine, sorry, nine billion in cash flow, free cash flow. So they have money. They they buy back a lot of shares. They have a small dividend relative to their size, but 
I think they have the luxury is maybe what I would say. They have the luxury of being a slow giant to some degree. I, I don't know how much, but I think because they have those strong properties, because those properties seem to still be doing well, people still care about sports. People still care about these other things. They have the ability, the luxury to, to be deliberate. Maybe that. So yeah, I, I am coming around to what you're saying, but maybe from another angle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go one, one more. People will get on a plane and book air travel to interact with this collection of characters. That's the depth of that identification people have with Disney. They'll actually travel across the country to participate in this fantasy experience. That's an argument in favor of, it doesn't matter what distribution mechanisms emerge or how consumers start to interact with content over the next 10, 20, 30 years. They're going to do whatever it takes to get to Mickey Mouse, to get to Han Solo, to get to Spider-Man and the Avengers. And I think that's kind of the take that Brian has here. If I were to recap this argument, it would be along the following lines. Families are addicted to Disney's entertainment offerings and their transgenerational product that's sort of immune to disruption from the content perspective. Second, the media business has gotten criticism lately, but it's a cash cow. He goes really into great detail, extending the cash cow metaphor in a way that's really entertaining. Shout to Brian for being a lively writer. But it's okay to have a cash cow, and it's okay to have business lines that are slower and steadier. And that ultimately, the, the cannibalization issue isn't a real issue. Disney's capable of generating a lot of upside to its business by getting into any kind of new distribution mechanism. I'm coming around to buying that, and we don't do a lot of let's talk our book here, but Daniel, you're long, so why don't we just springboard off of that and get into the fundamentals of the company, and then we'll circle back to sort of our overall take. The fundamentals are... Decent top. The top line hasn't been great the last few years. I think I'm just going to pull up their financials quickly now. I think revenue has been slowly growing over the last couple of years, but like 2017 was flat to 2016. Income is also, you know, generally grinding higher. It's going to be fluky this year because they had a big tax benefit at the end of last year, but. Like EPS is generally going in the right direction. Free cash flow has been healthily growing. They're trading, I think, for roughly 15 times free cash flow and 15 times PE, more or less, which to me is where generally I would prefer that to be an exit multiple. But when you're talking about a company that has the potential to be around for 100 years, it's attractive. They have net debt, but like I said, it's not, it's something like, I want to say 15 to 20 billion in net debt, which sounds like a big number, but when you're talking about a company that has a market cap of 150 billion, it's not crazy either. And so it has, it has that cushion where it doesn't, we talked about Kellogg last week and those consumer packaged goods companies. And you can see where the argument that they're, they're finding growth with them will be harder Disney is first half of this year, their growth has been 
very promising in terms of revenue and in terms of earnings and everything else. And so, yeah, I guess that's from a fundamental picture, it looks like a healthy, a healthy GARP company. Growth at a reasonable price is where I would put it with a stock that is, like I said, has been kind of, I would love to think that it's a coiled spring. I can pull up a chart and maybe put this in the article. They have, over the last three years, you look at free cash flow, you look at EPS, and you look at the price, and free cash flow and EPS are going up and to the right, and the price is not. And that's sort of an interesting position. And it, it, for the reasons we've discussed here, so I don't think it's wrong per se, but I think it's wrong enough that I'm opening a position and considering adding more to it. So I guess there's that. What's striking about it to me is that it feels very commonsensical and it's it's an easy story to buy. I suppose that the main risk to it that I would see is execution risk. You just have to continue. When you have a company like this, you have to continually avoid making large mistakes or turning your IP into lemons over time. Mm-hmm. You also don't, you, there's no guarantee about future successful execution. I was talking to someone, Lego has offices in Milwaukee, which is where I'm from, and the Lego movie resulted in all this enthusiasm, and the Lego company thought it was in a kind of new era of entertainment, toy synthesis, and they hired a bunch of people, and now they're going through layoffs because they overinvested in in a direction that the consumer wasn't going to sustainably actually go in. So maybe that would be a source for why it looks reasonably priced is because the need to continually keep that engine going is probably more of a challenge than you might think. It doesn't seem cheap, like you said, exit multiple instead of entry multiple. But in this market, you know, even with the chop we've had lately, maybe hard to ask too much in terms of the raw evaluation. But maybe that goes to the final point that I would make about the article itself. It really would have been a knockout punch to do a sum of the parts analysis or walk us through how this business model insight, which I think is extremely compelling, ties into the valuation story. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think you need that piece eventually. But I guess what I would compensate for on Brian's part, beyond the fact that it's just an article, is that I could say, hey, Mike, here are my numbers, and I'm going to chop affiliate revenue in half for ESPN, but I'm going to say 50 million subscribers at 10 bucks a month and they're going to have another 100 million, you know, like I could start throwing numbers at you and you could take them or leave them. Ultimately, you're going to want to do your own work there, I think. And I guess that's where I think that's what, what is interesting to me, story versus numbers. Somebody could come on and Rich Greenfield or whoever could come on and tell me why Disney is going to fail and tell you why Disney is going to fail. And that would be interesting. And I think it would be based on the story. And I guess that's what's so intriguing to me about the company. I don't think it's a sleep well at night, put it in the account and buy and hold forever position right now. I think it is. I don't, 
I don't know that any positions are really like that, but Disney, I think, is in a point where things could go one way or the other. But yeah, I, I think it is. I think the numbers would be helpful, and I guess that would be how I explain my thinking: is the numbers would be helpful, but given the multiple right now is not super demanding, I'm more concerned about thinking through what is the story, how does that translate into profit down the line, and then what do I want to make sure happens so that Disney makes that money? <laughs> make that money for Disney. Wow. Look, yeah, I, maybe it's just sometimes it's not that hard. I look at a lot of the Disney has a, a very long track record. We've made a good argument for it having a strong competitive advantage in several respects. It's not expensive, and there's quality here. A 40% gross margin, even if the revenue just grows at pace with the economy, it sort of feels like that would be, you're getting reasonable returns on assets and equity. The balance sheet looks healthy to me, you know, dead at two and a half times free cash flow, something like that. Maybe sometimes it's just time to, it's just time to buy a blue chipper. And it's not, we often try and outsmart ourselves, I think. And by we, I mean people who like to do independent research and investment analysis and be valuation hipsters and stuff. But maybe sometimes it's like, look, the, the Incredible Hulk is cool. Spider-Man's cool. It's going to be that way for a hundred years. This company has all that property. They'll manage through whatever media segment dysfunction there is. And the stock really has had some of the enthusiasm beaten out of it. And maybe sometimes it's just that simple. And here I was hoping you were going to talk me out of this, Mike. Oh, well, I'm never investing in Disney at this, at this price. Look, the consumer, American consumer is extremely fickle. You never know. We're not even going to be looking at screens. There's a risk that we'll not, never look at screens again in the next, like in 10 years. There will be some web contact lenses that transport us to another version of reality altogether. There's all sorts of innovation taking place in terms of addictive interaction with entertainment properties that's both pernicious and scary, but also potentially threatening to Disney. Children start walking around with iPads now constantly. Is Disney going to win the war to addict children to crazy, weird entertainment offerings? I don't know. I think there's reason to be skeptical of the story, but it is a really good it's a good story. Brian did a good job. And, you know, it looks like a good business. I, I tried. I tried there. And I think I, I think I almost got there. I almost talked myself back around. You were almost on the dark side. Don't buy, don't buy growth at a reasonable price. <laughs> Let the discounted cash flow through you. <laughs> Just think of what trilogy we're going to be on in a hundred years. On Alzheimer. <laughs> okay, so I think Disney. Yeah, it's a, that's it's about the story, and it'll be. I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to say come out overly on one side or the other. It's a balance. The Jedi is about balancing the dark and the light, Mike. Look, it's just look. There's risks here. You can take the risks. That's kind of look. 
That's what investing is all about, folks. <laughs> Just got to find out what the risks are and then see whether you're willing to take them. And, you know, when you're investing in Disney, a company everyone knows, everyone's talking about, everyone has an idea about, look, just look at the risks and just size them up. And that's the end of the story. That's how she wrote. For listening to buying the idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Investment insight. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's, let's wrap there. I think we've got the ending we want. Okay. So. Alright. Thanks, Mike. Alright, bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please leave a review on iTunes if you have the chance, as that will help us improve this podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we're expecting a special guest on Behind the Idea. If you have any investors in mind you'd love to hear join Behind the Idea, please let us know. You can tweet us at DanielSeekingA or at MBrooksTaylor. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening and see you next week on Behind the Idea.